Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Keep Lefty, programme of the Victorian Labour College. In the studio is me, Chris Gaffney. Unfortunately, Irene, as you've heard, is unable to be here today. Well, I've been, I've been talking about the, the Russian Revolution, and uh, I'll do part three today. And later on in the year, I'll do the reasons for the decline of the Russian Revolution. But uh, I had established already that during 1917, there were in fact two governments. There was the Provisional Government, and there was the Government of the Soviets, or a so second source of power, dual power. Well, Lenin's tactics brought rapid support for the Bolshevik Party, and a Tsarist general marched on Petrograd in September. Lenin insisted that the uh, Bolsheviks march separately from the Provisional Government, even though they were both interested in Kornilov's defeat. After this, we saw the formation of the Red Guard, which was the arming of workers, and the establishment of the Military Revolutionary Committee, over which uh, Trotsky presided. This resulted in dual power, that is, a situation in which the government's attempts to order regiments they considered contaminated with revolutionary ideas to the front line. Well, these people would then go to the Military Revolution Committee and they say, don't go. The statutes for the Red Guard required for admittance the recommendation of a socialist party, a factory committee or a trade union. Uh, the officers were elected in the Red Guard. In reality, they were often appointed by factory committees or other workers' organisations. This is an account of the Times, uh, sometimes ascribed to, to Jack Reed, John Reed, who wrote Ten Days That Shook the World. And if you've never read a book on the Russian Revolution, read that. It's a, an American's eyewitness account. Fantastic. And I'm quoting here, The people up around me appeared to be in ecstasy. They seemed to burst forth spontaneously in a religious hymn. Trotsky read a resolution to the general effect that they were ready to fight for the workers and peasants to the last drop of their blood. Who was in favour of this resolution? The immense crowd raised their hands as a single man. Trotsky went on. The hands remained raised. Trotsky said, let this oath be your oath. You swear to give all your strength not to hesitate before any sacrifice to support the Soviet, which undertakes to win the revolution and give you land, priests and bread. It was an insurrection. Uh, Kerensky escaped from Petersburg but his ministers were arrested at the Winter Palace on November the 7th in the modern calendar. And that very evening, the All-Russian Congress of Soviets met with the power of government in its hands. When the question of the assumption of power by the Soviet came up for discussion, <coughs> the Mensheviks, who were a, uh, uh, almost like a Social Democrats, more Labour Party-like, and right-wing peasant representatives withdrew from the Congress. The first Soviet government was set up by the Soviet uh, Congress of the Soviets. It elected an all-Russian Soviet executive committee of 102 members, 62 Bolsheviks, 20 left social revolutionaries. The social revolutionaries were the Peasants' Party. On a proposal of Trotsky, uh, members of the government were called people's commissars instead of ministers. Each hour brought encouraging messages from trade unions, the army and the local Soviets. But then counter-revolutionary forces began to grow. Petrograd only had supplies for a few days and none of the government agencies functioned. Den telegrams denouncing them came from general headquarters of the army, the Dumas, the fake parliaments of the Tsar, prov provincial councils and every former government body. 
The revolutionaries were landed bandits, usurpers, traitors who were unleashing civil war and the like. The bourgeois press, which continued to publish, we might add, declared that order would soon be restored, that loyal regiments were marching from the front with Kerensky at their head and a new provisional government would be set up. Now, the Soviets, basically at the same time as they took power, agreed to have elections to a constituent assembly, which is like like a modern, like a parliament we have in the West. Uh, these, of course, were weighted with mystical faith by the social revolutionaries because remember that 70% of the people in Russia were peasants and therefore the social revolutionaries would have to win any election like that. Uh, and that would give them a majority, which would certainly embarrass the Bolsheviks. Lenin said, Will there be any progress if the assembly is composed of cadets, they're the right-wingers, social revolutionaries and Mensheviks, this mistake shall not cost us the revolution. The, revolu the voting for the Assembly was as follows. Bourgeois parties, 13%. Social revolutionaries, supported mainly by the peasants, 58%. Mensheviks, 4%. And Bolsheviks, 25%. Uh, the social revolutionaries and the Mensheviks combined to make their total strength 62%. Lenin wrote a pamphlet called Elections to the Constituent Assembly. He said this, the country, being far away from events, had voted for their party, the social revolutionaries. The cities were all for the Bolsheviks, that is, the immense majority of the workers. For the two capitals, Moscow and Leningrad, the voting was cadets, half a million, Bolsheviks, 837,000. In the army, half the army voted for the Bolsheviks, and overwhelmingly, where regiments were close to events. Now, remember in those days, it wasn't television or media, People in the outside areas wouldn't have even known there was a revolution happening at all. Well, what, what was the Bolsheviks going to do about this constituent assembly? Well, Lenin's views were this, and I think correctly. This constituent assembly provided the widest possible democracy under a bourgeois republic. But the Soviets provide a superior form of democracy that led more rapidly to socialism. The majority of people had not yet time to settle vital questions by formal democratic methods and the civil war made it impossible to settle vital questions by the vote. To consider the constituent assembly as above the class struggle and the civil war was to adopt a bourgeois viewpoint. The Bolshevik president opened the assembly and urged the, uh, of the uh, constituent assembly and remember at the same time, the Soviets is still there. So this is a, effectively a rival power source. The Bolsheviks opened the uh, Constituent Assembly and urged the ad adoption of an, a document drawn up by Lenin. This included this. Russia to be a federation of Soviet republicans, republics, endorsement of the socialist revolution, nationalisation of the land, workers' control of production, nationalisation of the bank, universal obligation to work, formation of a Red Socialist Army and complete disarming of exploiters, a democratic peace without indemnities or annexations, a normament of debts to landowners and the bourgeois. This was the first blow at international finance capital. No exploiter of labour was to hold official positions. The Constituent Assembly to devote itself to the general elaboration of the fundamental principles for a transformation to a socialist society. Well, of course, the majority in the Constituent Assembly, consisting mainly of peasants, rejected the document. 
Proposals were then put forward by the social revolutionaries who wanted a general peace and opposed a separate peace for Russia. That is, Russia wanted to get out of the war earlier than the West wanted them to, and of course the Constituent Assembly opposed that. A leading Menshevik said this, He is not a socialist who encourages the proletariat to strike for its ultimate goal before it's passed through the democratic stage, that is capitalism, which enables it to become strong. Your peace negotiations risk the future of Russian democracy and socialism on the chance of a European revolution. The Bolsheviks and the left social revolutionaries withdrew from the assembly after Lenin had said this, quote, Not wishing to hide the crimes committed by the enemies of people for one minute, we declare that we are withdrawing from the Constituent Assembly, trusting in the Soviets to decide what attitude we must adopt towards the counter-revolutionary majority. That's in the uh, Constituent Assembly. The following night, the Soviet executive issued a decree decree dissolving the Constituent Assembly. The bourgeoisie uh, walled up and uh, went, you know, the Bolsheviks closed the power down and uh, Bolsheviks said that the bourgeoisie were ready to defend democracy with candles and cake. The toiling masses have become convinced by their experience that bourgeois parliamentary democracy is outworn, that it is incompatible with the construction of socialism, for national instruments cannot take the place of class instruments in breaking the resistance of the owning classes and laying the foundations for socialism. While parliaments never give the slightest support to the revolutionary movement, the Soviets breathe life into the revolution and say to the masses, fight for yourself, organise for yourself. Despite hardship, the overwhelming support for the Soviet government from the armed workers and the Red Guard enabled the Soviets to disperse the Constituent Assembly without resistance. The World War came to an end in November 1918, thus relieving the pressure of the German armies. But the revolution was confronted by further dangers from an invasion of some 14 different foreign armies organised by international capitalism. In their efforts to destroy the Soviet, no money was spared. Any general who would fight the Bolsheviks was given an army to come into Russia to try and destroy the Soviets. The struggle against the invading armies lasted two years, sometimes on more than one front. By the end of 1920, the last of the invading armies had been driven across the frontier, the Soviet power was finally established and the Allied blockade lifted in 1920. Trotsky had created, organised and led the Red Army from the rawest material into a force that defeated invaders from all over the capitalist world. A dangerous threat to the revolution emerged, however, in the fact that the Germans advanced into Russia after the 1917 seizure of power. Peace negotiations had reached a deadlock by January 1918 and the Germans were becoming furious at Bolshevik parties, the Bolshevik propaganda, particularly the fact that the Bolsheviks then published all the secret treaties made between the various imperialist powers. The Bolshevik, what was the Bolshevik party to do? Should they go for a separate, should they try and, uh, what should, how should they handle the peace negotiations? Well, the Bolshevik Central Committee met the next day. Lenin outlined the impossibility of fighting against the peace terms, however infamous, adding that a refusal to sign would mean the revolutionary government would be swept away. Trotsky advocated prolonging negotiations and issuing international propaganda for a German revolution which would be far more important than that of Russia. 
Trotsky initially won a majority, and his slogan was neither war nor peace. But unfortunately, the German armies just continued to advance into Russia. Uh, Trotsky's opinion was that the weakened German armies would be finally stopped, and the great strikes in Berlin showed signs of spreading. While the workers were enthusiastic to defend the revolution, the peasants refused support. A new German offensive brought the Germans closer to the capital. Lenin again proposed to the Central Committee the amending signing of the peace, and this was accepted by the Bolsheviks. Trotsky changed his opinion and went over to Lenin, resulting in Lenin winning the majority vote. More difficult terms were insisted on by the German Germans, and Russia was ordered to sign away the Baltic territories, Poland, Lithuania, Estonia, Ukraine and Finland. Lenin threatened to resign if these terms were not accepted, and Trotsky was given the job of negotiating with the Germans, and they signed a peace at Brest-Litovsk in March 1918. After Brest-Litovsk, and remember this uh, when you come to the 1920s as to why the Bolsheviks couldn't do more, they lost 40% of their workers with the occupation of the Donetsk oil basin by German forces, 90% of the fuel industry, 90% of the sugar industry, 65% of the metal industry and 50% of the wheat growing areas. The left communists and social revolutionaries <coughs> drew closer to each other in criticism of the Brest Treaty. They considered it a greater evil than the war. Lenin and the majority of the, pe- of the party awaited the collapse of Germany and world revolution. One essential difference between a bourgeois revolution, that is a capitalist revolution, and a socialist one, is that the former, born out of the feudal order, builds up its economic organs little by little in the heart of the old regime over hundreds of years by the development of commerce. It's quite otherwise with the socialist revolution. Here we have more the task of destruction. We have the much more difficult task of organising from scratch. Says Lenin, it's quite true, without the German Revolution, we shall perish. Perhaps we shall not perish in Moscow, but at Vladivostok. In any case, we shall perish without the German Revolution. And Trotsky and Lenin had conducted a revolution on the understanding that they couldn't build socialism in a backward country, despite what Stalin later later claimed, that they would require the revolution to, to spread to advanced capitalist countries. In this new type of state, without a bureaucracy, without a police, without a standing army, a state which substitutes for bourgeois democracy a new kind of democracy, forces the toiling masses into the vanguard, gives the legislative executive power to the workers, creating an apparatus which is designed at the same time to re-educate these masses. In 1919, Lenin and the Bolsheviks witnessed the establishment of the Third International, an international grouping of revolutionary Marxist party which degenerated under Stalin into an international agency serving the Russian bureaucracy's policy needs. Nevertheless, the international held four congresses during Lenin's lifetime. Lenin's last couple of years were preoccupied with fighting the growing bureaucratisation in the Soviet Union, coming from the fact that it was backward and that the revolution hadn't spread. He wrote this, with the exception of the People's Commissar of Foreign Affairs under Trotsky, Our state apparatus is, to a considerable extent, a survival of the past and hardly any serious change. A growing alliance developed between Lenin and Trotsky against this bureaucratisation, as personified by Stalin. 
Lenin, in his so-called testament, called for the removal of Stalin from the post of party secretary. This testament was suppressed after Lenin's death. We should not see this testament or the struggle between Lenin and Trotsky after Lenin's death in personal terms, but a struggle between social forces, those representing the working class and those representing the emerging democracy, the emerging bureaucracy. Lenin died in January 1924. Well, a few weeks ago, Sully McManus, the elected general secretary of the ACTU, said that it was all right to break unjust laws. The Fair Work Act, which makes it illegal for workers to strike outside a very narrow bargaining period, is one such unjust law. Now, workers could not only break the Fair Work Act, they could smash it to pieces if McManus and the rest of the ACTU actually led a campaign for a radically reduced working week to share the wealth around. The call to cut the working week, of course, challenges capital. The tendency since the end of the post-war boom in the late 1960s and early 70s has been for longer and longer working days. We were meant to have got 40-hour week in 1948, irrespective of what the awards or the enterprise agreements say. It was Marx who highlighted the fact that this lengthening of the workers' working day is one way the bosses try to restore profit rates. And these profit rates are falling because it's only human labour that produces new profit and the competition drives capitalists to try and make more profit by replacing workers with machines. The Australian Institute estimates that unpaid overtime is a gift from workers to bosses of about $110 billion a year. Well, that's only part of it. Childcare, mainly by women in their role as, in capitalism as mothers, is another gift of unpaid labour to the bosses in raising a new generation of workers. This gift from the working class is worth about $345 billion not paid every year. It'll require more than a national conversation, to use the ACT's words, to win a 30-hour week without any loss of pay. It'll require real class struggle, including breaking unjust laws that McManus is referring to. The time for talking about cutting the working day is well past. During the Depression in 1913, the ACTU proposed a 35-hour week, and then in 1931, a 30-hour week as a way to address unemployment, then running at about 30%. It's probably running about 15 to 20% here, really. In 1957, during the post-war boom, the ACTU decided to launch a campaign for 35 week. 60 years later, and we're still waiting for this. Nothing has changed in terms of the ACTU arguments for cutting the working wage. In 1957, almost all the benefits of the productivity gains of the last two decades have gone to the bosses, not the workers. The trend began well before then. As Dr Mitchell makes sure makes clear, most of the differences go to the bosses in the form of profits. What's clear, says Mitchell, who's an economist, is that since the December quarter of 1997, real wages have only grown by 11.6%. That's an average of 0.6% per year, whereas the hourly productivity rate has grown by 29.3% compared to 11.6 for the wages. This is a massive redistribution of national income to profits and away from wage earners 
and the gap is widening every quarter. Where does the real income that the workers lose by being unable to gain real wages growth go? Well, it goes to profits. The working week in Australia is now officially 38 hours. However, the very concept of a set working week is under attack, as the penalty rate decision shows. Unofficially, the working week for many workers, especially men, is much higher than 38, as the $110 billion in unpaid overtime suggests. The problem goes further than unpaid overtime. Forcing tired workers to work longer paid hours, sometimes under agreement enterprises that reduce overtime pay or trade it off, is another aspect. Not only are they less productive, they are damaging their health. At the same time, many workers are working too many hours. Many workers, especially women, are working too little. We rightly, uh, Natalie, the uh, Greens leader, captured this dichotomy when he said, quote, we rightly talk about the 16% of workers who want to work more hours. What we don't hear about is from the more than one in four Australians who say we want to work less. A four-day working week or a six-hour week might actually make us happier and create more opportunities for others who want more work. The threats to jobs and pay posed by globalisation and mechanisation are real, but so too are the threats posed by an all-consuming drive for profits at the expense of people, which is the norm for capitalism. We need to rethink not just the number of hours worked, but the very nature of work under capitalism and what alternatives could really exist. A militant working-class campaign for a 20-hour working week with no loss of pay offers that opportunity. It suggests a new world, a world without wage slavery where decisions are in fact made democratically. Another world is not only possible, says the uh, Indian Andati Roy, another world is not only possible, she is on her way. On a quiet day, I can hear her breathing. Well, a militant working week campaign could start this. It would require the unions, including their peak body, the ACTU, mobilising workers to strike for a big cut in the working week. The first hurdle, apart from themselves, and that's a major hurdle, would be the fair work laws, which make such strikes, except in the bargaining period, actually illegal. As Sally McManus recognises, it's time to smash such laws by breaking them en masse as workers, that is, by striking. It's been done before. In 1969, left-wing unions organised rolling General Strikes Australia to free union leader Clary O'Shea from jail because he refused to give the, uh, the government access to the union's books as part of his refusal to pay fines imposed on the union for illegal strike action. A mass industrial campaign for a 20-hour week could not only win that demand or some compromise, it could destroy the Fair Work Act and its severe restrictions on the democratic right to withhold labour, which we don't have now. But wait, there's more as the advertising men. Such a militant campaign would, if successful, destroy this government. What the hell are we waiting for? Let's get stuck into it.